Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Gather podcast. I'm Autumn Casiglia, and I am the adult ministry director here at Faith and a psychotherapist, counselor, part-time. I'm also mom to Joe and Nathan and wife to Pastor Joe. And I am so happy you're here with us. If you're part of our Faith family, welcome. If you're not, welcome. We hope you enjoy. Today, I get to interview Rebecca McLaughlin. She is a doctor um, trained at Cambridge University um, PhD in literature and also um, a theology degree from Oak Hill, right? Um, college. And she wrote the book Confronting Christianity 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And um, I've enjoyed reading it. Our staff has enjoyed reading it. And so today we get to ask her some questions and get her to talk a little bit to us about where her heart was when she first um, decided to write this book. So, hi, Rebecca, welcome. Hi, great to be here, virtually. So, you used to live in old Cambridge, and now you live in new Cambridge. So, tell me a little bit about how that happened. I would say I used to live in real Cambridge, and now I live in new, what should be called new Cambridge, because it's in New England, so it ought to be new Cambridge. Um, yeah, I, I um, was studying for my PhD um, and people often say that if you're going to meet a future spouse, you're, you're likely to meet them in college. And so I, I spent seven years in college and it was only at the very end of that um, that I met my now husband, Brian. Um, though, side note, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that for Christians, uh, singleness is at least as good as marriage um, and commends it to us in the scriptures. So um, for those uh, single in the, in the audience, um, you're not missing out on anything if you're not missing out on Jesus. Um, but yeah, Brian and I met right at the end of, of my PhD as I was transitioning to seminary and he still had a couple of years of his PhD to wrap up. Um, he's from Oklahoma. I went to Oklahoma State for his undergrad and then got a, a study abroad scholarship to, to come to the UK. And I would say it's, it's really hard to find a kind of a good evangelical man in England. Um, and so God sent me a boy from Oklahoma. <laughs> And after I finished my PhD, uh, sorry, my seminary degree, he finished his PhD. We got married the, the year before we both finished up uh, and then moved to the U.S. Um, right after that. And so how does um, it uh, compare across the pond? How does, how does life here compare to there? Maybe Christianity and also weather, all of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's so many things to say. Um, I lived most of my life either in London or in Cambridge, UK. And Cambridge, Mass or Boston is kind of like if London and Cambridge, UK had a baby together because it's, you know, it's a proper international city, which Cambridge, UK isn't. You know, people don't fly into Cambridge really um, from international places. I mean, they do actually a bit in Europe, but just <laughs> it's not a big city. Uh, and at the same time, it's really a college town. So I feel at home here, it's as close both geographically and culturally to being in the UK as you can be whilst mm -hmm. being in America. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And it, honestly, it was, it was a wrench to leave the UK, partly because of all the family and friends I was leaving behind, and partly because I was leaving what felt like a relatively sort of gospel poor country for a relatively gospel rich country. It didn't seem to make any, any sense um, on one level, um, but, but actually, as is often the case, I think when you kind of look back over your shoulder, it's often hard to see what God's doing when you look ahead. Um, mm -hmm. But when you look back over your shoulder, it's it's amazing to see how he works his purposes out. Um, 
In terms of how the UK and the US are different, uh, I, I live obviously in, in one of the more kind of secular parts of the US compared to a place like Oklahoma, for example. And yet I would say that Christianity is sort of Bible believing, serious Christianity is probably more widespread here than it is in my hometown. Um, I think in both case, in both places, a, the, the makeup of Jesus's church is extremely diverse. And I think this is one of the things that we miss often in the kind of headline news or, or the stories about Christianity's decline is that actually, um, whereas it is true that among white Westerners, both in Europe and in the US, um, that fewer people are um, acknowledging, that, uh, identifying as Christians, right. uh, there's sort of less cultural Christianity, that actually um, people from all sorts of other parts of the world, whether Im immigrants sort of like myself or, or folks um, who, who've grown up in, in the UK and, and the US who are not white are actually significantly more likely identify as Christians and to be um, regular members of their church, regular Bible readers, regular people, you know, praying to the Lord, seeking to reach their friends for Jesus. So I see some similarities and some differences, um, but I see the same Jesus and, and the same kind of messy fellowship of faith um, in both places. So interesting uh, story. Joe and I, my husband and I went to, to the UK, we got to travel and see churches that are growing there. So we visited about seven churches and really met some wonderful people. And then on the plane back, we met a couple that was from Africa that was coming home to the United States to do mission work. <laughs> they were from Africa coming to the United States to do mission work. So yeah, it makes a lot of you, sense, honestly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think in our Western culture, we just, um, here we go with my earbuds not working for me. There we go. Um, you know, we think uh, just that uh, Christianity is just a Western, a Western faith, and we see Christianity rising all over the world, and yet uh, missing out. And the odd thing there is that if we read our Bibles more carefully, we'd know that Christianity has been a multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural movement from day one. In fact, we see the first African Christians coming to Jesus in the Book of Acts. Exactly. So I think people sometimes have this idea that. Christianity really took hold in the West and then at some point sort of Western missionaries went to Africa, which is true. There's, there's some truth in that story. But actually, there are African Christians in the Bible itself. And Ethiopia became one of the first officially Christian states in the world before the gospel ever you know, came near to America. So I, I think sometimes we sort of, if we, if we read the Bible more carefully, we'd be less surprised by some of the things we see today. And don't you think the root of all these questions that our culture is asking about Christianity really comes from that bias, that Western ethnocentric bias? A lot of these questions. At come least from some of them, yes. Yeah. yeah. So let's jump into some of that, um, some of the questions that are posed um, from, from the book that I just loved. Um, one was like, how can an educated person believe in a physically raised Jesus? You know, and that, that question came up throughout is just how can you believe in the miracles and, um, how, how can you believe and take the Bible literally? Yeah. Yeah. So many things to say that, um, firstly, I, I think it, it's easy for, for those who, aren't Christians or who maybe are questioning whether they want to kind of continue with Christianity, 
it's easy to imagine that there is a perfectly coherent sort of secular alternative that does all the work that Christianity does for us without having to believe in crazy things like people being raised from the dead or a, a miracle working God or you know, somebody who created the, the entire universe. But the more I've looked into it, the more I've realized that there just isn't. Uh, the, the alternative that's presented to us today is, is in many ways, um, you know, the secular alternative is actually something that's built on Christian foundations. So when, when our, our secular friends, um, which I guess as many do believe in, in universal human rights and equality, when they believe that men and women are intrinsically um, equal, uh, when they believe that racism is wrong, um, or that it, it, it's not a, a good thing to dominate and, and oppress the weak, um, but it is a good thing to care for the poor and the sick. None of these things are self-evident truths. You know, apologies to the Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, saying we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's actually not a self-evident truth at all. It's a specifically Christian belief. Mm-hmm. And so I think what people don't realize is that the, the alternative to Christianity is not a, a more coherent, more intellectually defensible, um, more just, more moral, uh, secular way of looking at things. It's pretty much an abyss. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing that. And I've heard another interview with, uh, you were talking about the author of a book, Homo Sapiens, and just how compelling that was to hear, you know, the idea that when you when you break it down, if you if you want to believe in all the human rights and, and say they're universal, you do have to realize that as most cultures do, like Iran and Saudi Arabia, who wouldn't sign um, the universal human rights statement, is like they, you break it down and you realize they're all based on Judeo-Christian beliefs. Yeah, and I actually so. have this book here, people are interested to, to see it, um, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari, who identifies as an, as an atheist himself. He's very clear about the fact that the idea of universal human equality came to us from Christianity. And that without, I mean, he says that that the scientific study of Homo sapiens has embarrassingly little to do with the idea of universal human equality. Um, He says that human beings have no natural rights, just as hyenas, chimpanzees, and spiders have no natural rights. If if we're brutally honest, if, if we're actually kind of truly honest about what the world looks like without God, then, then folks like him are being truly honest about it. Um, but I don't think that message is actually like really penetrated or, or percolated at a social level because we continue to have, even folks who, who may not identify as um, Christians or, 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 or Jews or, or identify with a particular kind of religious um, set of beliefs, nonetheless, they'll have these kind of carryover beliefs like the basic moral building blocks that we all sort of rely on. Um, and even at times, honestly, like the, the idea that there is some kind of purpose to the universe or, or mm-hmm. that um, their loved ones who've died are looking down at them from a better place. I mean, I, I have friends who don't believe in God at all who will say things like that. And I, I sort of wanted to, to gently say to them, if there is no God, there is no universe to have a purpose. There's actually, I mean, people talk about Christians being on the wrong side of history. From an atheist perspective, there's there's no story, there's no reason to think that the universe or the world or history is is developing toward a a more just place. And in fact, from an atheist perspective, there's there's no way of even knowing what that would be Mm -hmm. because there's no 
real moral fabric to the universe. There's, there's no sense in which you and I are anything more than a collection of atoms and molecules. Um, yeah. And I always want to be clear, because sometimes I think as Christians, we, we mishear that and we, we say, okay, atheists often use the language of science to make these points. And so what we need to do is reject the science. And we need to say, no, 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 you and I are not atoms and molecules. You and I are not mammals. You and I are not, um, you know, all the things that science says that we are. Or that we need to find some piece of us that isn't, either in our kind of historical development or in, in our physical manifestation now. But actually, I, I don't think that's what we need to do at all. I, I think we, we need to say that um, we are not just those things. Yeah, you uh, give the story of putting your kids to bed. And I just, I love that story. Yeah. How are yeah, you? I, mean, I, I don't know how many um, folks listening are, are parents, but I have three kids who are 10, 8, and, and 2. Um, and when I put them to bed, I could say, you know, I am your um, progenitor. You and I are both mammals. Your other progenitor is in the other room, you know, putting the baby down. Uh, I could tell them about their DNA and their sort of scientific origins. And all of those things could be true. But in fact, I tell them that I'm their mother and I love them. And I think even as we, we read the scriptures, sometimes we, we actually um, think too much about science, if that makes it. We sort of, we actually get our priorities the wrong way around. And, and we sometimes miss the things that God is saying to us because we're sort of bought into this idea that science is not just really important, but actually the most important thing. Um, and I, I think is the more I, I've thought about it, the more I've realized that scientific explanations of things can be really helpful and useful and, and good and God-given. Um, some of the, uh, one of the early scientists talked about it being like sort of thinking God's thoughts after him. Yeah. Um, they're actually not the most important thing that we have to say about ourselves. Yeah. So when you say to your kids, I love you, I'm your mom, good night, you know, that's, that's connection, that's attachment, and that's what God's saying to us through his word, is he's trying to have an attachment with us. He's having, trying to have a relationship. And what I love about your book is you actually wrote it with a friend in mind, Natasha, and um, I think a lot of people are listening, and they're thinking of friends at work that they love, they're thinking of their kids, their grandkids, and um they know they're educated, but maybe they don't feel quite as educated as you, Rebecca, and they read your book and it's great, but it's a bit of a stretch for them. How can they make use of this book, this information in a way that um, they can approach it, not in a, a way of debating, but in a way of engaging and love and what kind of stance should they take so that it's a, a life-giving conversation? Yeah, that's super helpful. I think one of the most helpful things we can say as Christians in conversation with friends who, who may not be following Jesus is, is I don't know. Um, I, I think to be willing to acknowledge the, the spaces and the, the questions and the times when we think, gosh, I actually don't know the answer to that. Or maybe I have sort of some idea of the answer, but I'd, I'd really need to read up more or, um, you know, maybe we can read up together or maybe we need to look at, at what some experts, you know, both Christian and non-Christian have to say about these questions. What I've tried to do with, with this book and, and with the, the other books that I've got coming out as well is to give um, people access to expert views on various things. Um, because the, the reality is none of us is an expert on more than one thing. Um, we'll all have different areas of expertise and your area of expertise, um, you know, it could be astrophysics or it could be um, homeschooling your kids or it could be um, being an, an excellent uh, worker in the environment that God's, God's put you in, or whatever, all sorts of different kinds of expertise we might have. 
and and none of us is is going to really truly be an expert in in more than one or maximum sort of two domains and so yeah. we have to, we kind of need to listen to people who've who've done a lot more thinking than we have and I, and I absolutely class myself as somebody who needs to listen to folks who've done a lot more thinking than they, ha they have um I see myself less as an expert and more as some, sort of somebody who who knows where the experts are to be found and can can point other folks to them that's why I love it Christian yeah. friends to say mm -hmm. hey I'm not saying I have the, all the answers um but and I take your questions very seriously I actually think one of the ways I tried to write confronting Christianity and and the kind of kids version of it was to say these are really good and important questions they're not ones that can be dismissed lightly and, and often they're, they're grounded in things that Christians should believe. Um, for, for example, the question like, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? We should share with our non-Christian friends a, a belief in um, the goodness of love across racial, ethnic, socioeconomic difference. Um, but, but actually, I think in, in, with each of these questions, when you look more closely at them, they become not a reason to, to not believe in Jesus, but a reason to believe in him. Yeah, you get to know him personally as a person mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not um, not the image of what you think is being portrayed through culture. And, and you see that he flipped the culture on its head. He changed the, the value of women and children drastically. I love the quotes in your book that talk about um, how it's the most diverse um, religion and the most, um, you know, considerate towards women and children. And so when you look at that, I think that's important to look into. What I love, the way I look at the book too, is if, if my kids raise a question, I look at it as almost like an encyclopedia. Let me go back to this and reread this and like kind of not to get facts to debate, but mm -hmm. to say, hey, you know, maybe you want to consider this um, in addition to these other things you're considering, because typically it's YouTube, you know, it's something they heard. And so you're like kind of saying, okay, that's, that's important and we do need to consider that and look into that because we do. I think what's hard is oftentimes um, Christians are portrayed very negatively and rightly so in the media. I don't align with a lot of what I see in mm -hmm. what is portrayed as Christian in the media. Yeah. And so for, for kids to grow up in a culture that way, it's just really hard for them. So I feel like your book is so perfect to be able to give the teenagers the new book um, to read themselves and to kind of, you know, to respect them enough to say, you're smart. Let me just give you something to chew on here. And we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. And so I think sometimes right now um, there's a culture that says um, that, you know, people aren't going to come to Jesus through their minds. But I find a lot of people do come through their minds. And I see even Jesus appealing to people, especially the Pharisees, with logic. And uh, so I know in our house, we, we chew on things a lot. Um, we're just that way. That's just how we're wired. And, um, and so for me to be able to give that to my son has been really a, a blessing to our conversations and added a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the reason, so f for those who, who aren't familiar, because it hasn't quite come out yet, though, um, I think you can already pre-order it. I, I've written a book called um, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, which is in some ways a, a junior version of Confronting Christianity. And I wrote it, I mean, kids, as probably we all know, develop at very different rates and, and uh, sort of hit questions at very different times. Um, my eldest child is, is 10 going on 11, and she'll be ready to read this book, even though it's sort of 
build as mm -hmm. a, a teen book. Right. Um, there'll be there'll be some kids who maybe sort of sixteen, and this would be the best book for them. There's lots of lots of Disney, lots of Harry Potter, um, engaging some really hard questions and um, trying to maintain the same sort of standard of, of um, paneling insight from experts that the, right. the adult book does, but at the same time making it more accessible um, for kids. So. If, if folks are wanting to process some of these questions with their children or their grandchildren, um, my hope is that this book would be an easy one, you know, for us to read as, as parents or grandparents and also to, to pass on um, to our kids for them to, to read and explore as well. So yeah, trying to engage some of the same sorts of content. So we were, you know, talking with friends the other day and we had a great conversation, but one of the questions that came up is, you know, isn't Christianity causing violence, you know, isn't that? And so I thought, well, how perfect would it be to hear uh, a little bit, you know, I think the culture right now could hear a little more about um, why, um, you, I think you say doesn't literature cause violence or something, so we have to be more specific. And, and so what, what would you say to somebody that says, doesn't Christianity cause violence? Yeah, the, the way that it's often framed, at least in my experience, is people say, doesn't religion cause violence? That's where I would say almost any statement we make about religion is kind of like a statement made about philosophy. I mean, if you said, doesn't philosophy cause violence? I'd have to say, well, which, which philosophy are we talking about? Because there are all sorts of different philosophies, actually. Um, and so I think we need to look at, at Christianity in particular. And one of the things we'll notice when we do, especially if we put Christianity in, in its historical context um, and the, the world in which sort of Christianity sprang up, we'll find that many of our moral standards have actually come to us from Christianity. So for example, in, in the, the Greco-Roman world into which Christianity was born, um, the, the idea of going and kind of completely decimating your enemies was not problematic at all. It would be like, you know, your sports team won. Brilliant, great, everybody's happy, have a party. Jesus came along and said, love your enemies. It didn't make any sense at all. Um, he told the, the, the famous story of, of the Good Samaritan, and it's really hard for us to actually hear that story well, because in our minds, if we've heard the word Samaritan at all, we've only heard of it because of Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. So when I say Samaritan, you think good, right? <laughs> in Jesus's specific cultural context, Samaritans were the, the hated racial and ethnic group. And Jesus told a story in which a Samaritan was the, the moral hero who far from engaging in violence, went and picked up a, a Jewish man who'd been violently assaulted and left by the side of the street and took care of him. And um, when his own, the, the religious leaders of his, of his own kind of ethnic and religious group had walked by on the other side and not cared at all. Uh, and we see Jesus intentionally going to the cross and submitting to violence against himself when he had the power to do completely the opposite. Um, I, I love that moment when Jesus says, you know, don't you think that I have the authority to call legions of angels right now? Mm -hmm. he's, he's not on the cross because he's powerless to do anything else. He's, he's on the cross because he is using his power not to do violence to others, but actually to, to take that, that violence and to, um, to stand in our, in our place, um, you know, paying, paying for our sin in that moment. And then the, the whole Christian message is oriented around this man who refused to fight for himself, who told his followers not to either. I mean, even Peter, as he, when Jesus is arrested and he tries to sort of draw a sword to, 
defend Jesus, and Jesus says no, <laughs> heals the man that Peter hurt. Um, and we see that this radical picture coming out of the New Testament of, of non-violence, even in the face of persecution. And I, I think one of the ways that um, we need to really get our heads around that, be that better today in our particular cultural context, where my guess is most of us, um, most folks listening to this, this podcast, the question for us isn't, isn't on a daily basis, you know, do we physically assault our enemies or not? You know, it's probably less at that level. Yeah. We do, I think, have a strong urge to fight for our own rights, even at the expense of other people's. Mm -hmm. And we'll swallow all sorts of things um, in the name of fighting for our own rights. And I think we need to remember, I don't think there's a single verse in the Bible about fighting for your own rights. Mm -hmm. There's a lot about fighting for other people, like uh, taking care of the poor and the vulnerable and sticking up for, for those who are oppressed. I can't think of a verse that tells me I should fight for my own rights. And, and I think sometimes we've kind of got things a little bit topsy-turvy in our, in our thinking, even at the sort of more metaphorical level of fighting. Yeah, the violence of words versus the violence of actions, for sure. Mm. And yeah, building up. Well, and I think that's the, that goes to, you know, if we have these family members that are um, it, more interested in debating than actually just discussing, like how do we not get into quarrels and about, our religion and our faith, but actually just have loving conversations if we're not um, supposed to defend ourselves, but we are supposed to defend our faith. Like, how does the rubber meet the road there? And how do we walk that out? Uh, and it's something that I'm obviously, you know, faced with frequently myself, um, both in extended family and also in, in friend situations. I think it's really easy to convince ourselves that we're defending Jesus when in fact we're defending our own ego. And I'm frequently guilty of that. I have to sometimes sort of just stop myself and think, okay, am I trying to win the argument against this person and slap them down? Mm -hmm. Or am I trying to love this person as Jesus calls mm -hmm. me to, to love my enemies? Now, to be clear, telling somebody the truth is loving, mm -hmm. even if it's not a truth they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I don't think that the scriptures call us to a sort of uh, passivity um, that, that isn't trying to, tell others about the exclusive and, and radical and offensive claims of Jesus. I think, I think it is. But I, if, if you're anything like me, there'll be a strong temptation as we go along there to really try to defend our, ourselves and our own kind of pride in those situations as well. And I think that's where we need to strongly resist. What we need to remember, I, I think this is something we get from the scriptures, and it's also very much borne out in, in sort of psychological studies today. We think that we're primarily rational people that we we sort of logically come to conclusions and that all of us probably think that we would be open to alternative uh, rational arguments against our position actually we're not um there's a, a one of the leading um social psychologists describes it we're a little bit like um a rider sitting on top of an elephant and our, our rational self is the little person on top of this massive elephant that is trying to ride and our emotional social self is the elephant and so in order to persuade somebody actually to change their mind, we don't just need to speak to the rider on top of the elephant. We, we need to talk to the elephant. And the way that we talk to the elephant is by um, showing love and showing empathy and listening and not sort of striking back with that one line zinger or that sort of Facebook meme that we think is going to slap the other person down. It's actually by putting our first foot needs to be, okay, how can I love this person in this situation? 
is it listening to them? Is it saying, yeah, that's a really important question. Is it saying, yeah, you're right, I probably have been a hypocrite. Um, we're not here to defend ourselves. And, and I, I love how, how Paul puts it in his um, first letter to Timothy, where he says, um, this is a, a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Uh, I, I think often our non-Christian friends or family expect us to be saying, I'm a Christian, so I'm better than you. Yeah. Paul said, I'm a Christian, and I'm the worst sinner I know. <laughs> And honestly, if, if, we're, if we're brutally honest about our own inner lives, we probably should be saying similar things and, and, and less, less keen to kind of defend our territory and more willing to say, yeah, you're right, I probably am a hypocrite. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm not here to defend myself on that. Um, but interestingly, Jesus seemed to side with those who weren't hypocrites and to, to look for... Um, welcome the the repentant and the marginalized and those who kind of knew that they didn't have it together um versus the people who were self-righteous so if if you're sick of self-righteous religious people jesus was as well um but maybe you know maybe we can look at him together that's great that's compelling much more compelling than a debate so yeah and i think that's where a lot of us find ourselves is kind of just living in that post-christian world and saying okay more more and more i just have to look inward like where am i at with jesus and how do i just live that out and be that light where where we are instead of um you know trying to come up against culture that's that's asking these questions i mean we need to know the answers for ourselves but it's like yeah the the latest facebook post the latest it's not going to change hearts yeah, and I think even as we think about the the, the sort of quite post-Christian world that, that we live in, and that there are there are reasons people talk in, in those terms. It's absolutely true that in, in the US today, um, the proportion of people identifying as Christians is is less than it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I don't think that's as bad news as some people think it is. And let me let me just explain for a minute why. Um, I would much rather somebody who is not in fact a Christian realize that. Because if you, if you think you're already a Christian, you're not really going to um, look at Jesus seriously. You're going to think, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've got that covered. And there's been a, there's been a lot of, um, for better or for worse, there's been a lot of, of cultural Christianity um, it, it, for many generations in the US. And um, there have been absolutely you know, faithful believers as well. But there's been a lot that's been, oh, well, this is kind of what I grew up with. It, it was never challenged it's frankly easier for me to be a Christian than to be anything else. Um, and, and even as we look at uh, things, I, I think it can feel, especially for folks who've you know, seen multiple generations, it can feel like, gosh, there's like this sort of progressive moral slump that's been going on for the last 50, 100, 200 years, whatever, like, whichever frame you want to take. I mean, some, if you look at some moral dimensions, that's true. And if you look at others, it isn't. I mean, if we think about the fact that um, only a couple of generations ago, we had systems in America where black Americans were in no, val no reasonable sense being treated as, as equal to, to white Americans. And actually, you know, black believers, who black folk in America are the most likely to be Christians, um, especially black women, uh, interestingly. Um, you know, if we go back uh, not long before then, we, we have um, black people being enslaved in this country. 
by by men, often by people who are, who saw themselves as Christians. Um, and so I think, whereas in, in if you look at sort of some things that the Bible talks about as sinful, uh, there are ways in which you can say, yeah, our, our society is kind of progressed down. There are other ways in which, gosh, if we look back in, into a past world with sort of rose-tinted glasses, we need to pick up our Bibles and realize, no, 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 this wasn't a good, this wasn't the morally good time that we need to hark back to. Actually, it was a morally mm-hmm. terrible time in many ways mm-hmm. um, that the Bible absolutely causes us to repent of. So I, I want to say that in, in, a, in a hopeful way, actually. To say I don't think America is sort of going to hell in a handcart in, in some sort of new way. I think as, as ever, there have been um, faithful followers of Jesus, um, you know, living sinful lives, but living lives, you know, seeking to, to follow him. Um, and there are people who identify as Christians who honestly probably aren't, um, as that's always been the case. And the fact that increasing numbers of people who maybe a, a generation ago would have identified as Christians, but truly wouldn't have been, and now not identifying as Christians, that's not in and of itself a bad thing. It may be that they're actually more open to truly hearing the gospel um, than before when they kind of thought they already knew it. Yeah, I think that's such a message of hope because we've heard for decades, you know, post-Christian era. And I love how you make uh, the point that our Christianity, it's a global, you know, we have to look at the whole globe. Where is Christianity um, rising? And the fact that this is not, it's a change in America, but it's not, it's, it's not actually, it's just a reality check that maybe there wasn't that strong Christian true faith to begin with. It was cultural. And so um, when we look, though, over the whole world, we see it on the rise more than the fall. And so that's what we need to like look at for yeah, that hope I mean, and that light. I think it's particularly fascinating what's happening in China at the moment. Right. So in China, it is truly hard to be a Christian in China today. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know some degree of in- inconsistency, but there is meaningful pers- like government persecution of, of Christians in China, and that's not going away. And nonetheless, by 2025, experts think that there'll be more Christians in China than in America. And some experts think that by 2060, China could be a majority Christian country. <clears throat> and if you think about that, in, I mean the, the the magnitude of that in global terms um, is is stunning. Um, and you'll, you'll find often that, that folks who've immigrated to America from China or have come here to study often come in contact with Christians and end up becoming believers themselves, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, one, one piece of what's, what's been happening in China, as, as well as, you know, many um, Chinese folk living in China, faithfully administering the gospel to others. Um, interestingly as well, it, it's a predominantly a, a movement of women, which has always been the case, actually. <laughs> Uh, in, in the church since the, the very beginning there have been more Christian women than men um, and that seems to continue so whereas in, in a lot of people's minds today you know folks who, who wouldn't identify as Christians um, you know especially kind of white secular liberal folk um, in my neighborhood here a lot of them would, would think of themselves as being on the, on the side of diversity and sort of pro-women's rights in fact if you look at the, the global demographics of Christianity Christianity is the most diverse belief system in the world and the greatest movement for women in all of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we just did a study um, for our Bible study, Jesus and Women, and that is exactly what we came away from is just this um, 
this concept that the that Jesus came in and he turned the culture on its head and revolutionized everything and how women were treated. The fact that Mary could sit at Jesus's feet, you you had to apply to be a disciple of a rabbi and her sitting at his feet was she was she was a disciple, she was a follower and so that's amazing to to consider just how he treated women for every parable for a man like being the 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 uh, subject of the parable there's a a one for women. So for every single one there's a there's a man version and a woman version teaching the same lesson so he's clearly yeah it's especially interesting in in luke's gospel um, if you read through luke with your eyes open to this luke gives us often parallels men and women so it starts off with Mm -hmm. mary and zachariah both of them get a visit from the angel gabriel saying great news you're going to have a baby (laughs) miraculously and zachariah sort of questions gabriel this is wonderful why gabriel says i am gabriel i stand before the lord like i'm an angel and you're not listening to me what on earth and so um, Zechariah is, is unable to speak until John is born. Mm-hmm. Um, and conversely, Mary has her faith commended. Um, you see that right through to the end when women are the first witnesses of the resurrection, just consistent of, across all, of, all the Gospels. And the men thought it was like foolish talk, an idle yeah. tale told to them by these women. Because in those days, women weren't taking that seriously. They, they weren't really respected as you know, witnesses in, or, or valid like legal um, witnesses in a court. Um, and Jesus, you know, rebukes his disciples towards the end of Luke when he says how, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe what the scriptures have, have been saying. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of fascinating reading through Luke in, in particular um, yeah. and seeing how, how women are, are lifted up. So, well, it was so good to be with you, Rebecca, and I so appreciate your books. And I'm excited to hear how this has impacted um, the people in my life and how they've enjoyed it. And um, I just ask that God would bless you. So let me just pray. I'll pray that God would bless you as you. Yeah. Father, thank you so much for um, gifting Rebecca with the education that you've gifted her with and with the passion to apply um, what she's learned and to give it to us in these books and just in her speaking, I just pray you bless her ministry, that you would shine your light through her, and that many would come to know you as their Lord and save you through her work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Have a good day, Rebecca. And you take care. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, it has been so good to be with you today for the Gather podcast. And I appreciate you um, just kind of flexing with us as we do an interview for Zoom. And getting a chance to talk to Rebecca has been a joy for me because I've loved her book. If you like today, like and subscribe. We would love for you to comment below on other things you would like to hear on the Gather podcast. God bless. Take care.